Today's guest, Dr. Alice Atalanta, is an extraordinary woman. I met her at one of Tony Blower's combative camps and the Spear System training certification programs. And that was after I had the opportunity to read one of her many articles that she's published. And the article that really just opened my eyes and made me aware of what an extraordinary woman she really was is one called Embrace the Violence. And I'm just going to give you a short quote from that as a lead-in to our conversation. In that article, she said, When I was sexually assaulted, I didn't know how to fight. I had always been taught that violence and aggression were objectively bad under all circumstances. I was as close to a pacifist as you ever would have found. What my sexual assault taught me was that violence doesn't care about your ideology. When violence finds you, you don't get to cry, I'm a pacifist, and opt out of the game. It's then and there that you fight back or pay the price. So with that, we're going to dive right into the interview, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with her. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude. Today, I am super happy to be able to bring on the show a woman that I met several years ago and have sort of followed from afar, watching her adventures and journeys and incredible work via the internet. And when I started the podcast and I was thinking about amazing, powerful women to bring on the show, she was one of the people that I first thought of. So I am so excited to have her here. As a professional writer who specializes in collaborations with special operations personnel, a self-defense and combatives instructor, a USA boxing competitor and official, former All-American snowboarder, a she-shreds athlete, Dr. Alice Atalanta provides insight into the struggles and triumphs of being a female player on a male playing field. She holds three master's degrees and a PhD and is a regular contributor to the Havoc Journal. She's a single mom of two who has also worked as an outdoor educator and a wilderness guide, and she now lives with her kiddos and a menagerie of animals, including Pippi, a rescued wild mustang on her farm in Ohio. She's also a sexual assault survivor, and we first connected after she published an article called Embrace the Violence that caught the attention of my self-defense coach and mentor, Tony Blower. So welcome to the show, Dr. Alice Atalanta. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to connect and to see you again, even virtually. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, I know we kind of keep tabs on each other via Facebook and other things, but it is really great to finally connect and be able to have a conversation because I got to tell you, I am just busting full of questions. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to start with some some questions that are not related to the nitty-gritty stuff just to kind of get us in the flow and get us going. So are you ready for that? Sounds like fun. Okay. 
Well, if you could live in another era, when would it be? Uh, I'd either be a pioneer out West, probably. I, I think I'd be a pioneer. That doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise you at all. Yeah, anything that involves starting fires and living outside, I think that would be my my goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I see you, I instantly think frontier woman. <laughs> yeah, so that comes as no surprise. Either that or the 70s. There's a lot of bands I'd like to see live, and that would have had to happen in the 70s. So I'd, I'd take either one. <laughs> Two totally different aspects of you. Like what, is it, <laughs> uh, what is it about that Wild West time, the frontier pioneer days that is appealing? I don't know. I'm really big into the outdoors and survival and I love to be out West. And I just think you derive the most personal growth out of challenging yourself in that way. So I think I've always been drawn to it and it's just how I raise my kids. And I think the simpler, the better. I think there's a lot of stuff in our world that we overcomplicate and life would have been a lot easier if if we would have just focused on what really mattered and outside always seems the best place to do that. (laughs) That's, That's my short answer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the things you've done with your kids to sort of foster that? We've traveled in the outdoors since they were little, little babies. And when I was first getting divorced, I was working as an outdoor leadership guide for L.L. Bean in Cleveland. And um, I basically loaded up my Toyota Sienna minivan with all the camping equipment, food, rations, water, everything. Threw my kids in it. And I was like, we're going. Let's go. And we took just two weeks and we drove all over and we drove in a great big loop and we camped everywhere we went. And I wanted my kids to have that self-sufficient feeling and, and to have them understand that it's who you're with, not where you are. And that as long as we were together, we were going to be okay, whether we changed houses or moved or mommy and daddy weren't together. And, and that remained a trend through that period of our lives. So I would you know, periodically pack up and take them on another adventure to a different part of the country. And we went out to Oregon, we went to North Dakota, you know, went to Virginia, we went on, we, you know, the kids competed in rodeos, we camped in the Indian reservation in North Dakota, powwows, and just just saw a ton of stuff, but, but kept it, it really, really minimal. Our style of camping is more like taking with you what you'd take if you were backpacking. And I think in that way, it was able to instill that curiosity in my kids and that wonder in nature when they were still like so young and impressionable that it could really stick. Oh, that's awesome. What, what a way (laughs) to grow up by just really having incredible experiences like that. And, and I love that orientation towards self-sufficiency. I think that's probably something that's really coming in handy for a lot of people now who have those skills. That's so true. And I love living on this farm has made such a difference to us. As, you know, in the last year we were fortunate to finally get a little more land and we had been living with an HOA before, which was not a good fit at all for our lifestyle. And um, it, this lockdown has been a total blessing for us, just having my kids here every day and being outside with them, watching what they discover and, and invent on their own by necessity. You know, my daughter can do a handspring now and my son jumps his bike off dirt piles. He couldn't even ride a bike when this started. And it's, that's them. That's all them. They're so much cooler than I am. You know, I did, all I give them is freedom and that's what they do with it, which is just amazing to make kids astonish me every day. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's awesome. So how has life changed since you got your Mustang, Pippi? Oh, it's been so much better. Pippi is my biofeedback. And the woman who rescued Pippi initially, her name's Diane Delano, and she has a rescue down in Florida called Wild Horse Rescue Center. And Diane is an incredible woman who, talk about a strong woman, has just devoted her life to Mustangs. And everything she does and the passion which which she loves these horses is infectious and contagious. And she connected our family with Pippi. 
and Pippi came home. And, and the thing I learned, Diane always told me that, that Mustangs are telepathic is what she'd tell me. She said, you can't fool your Mustang is she knows what you feel. And that's, that's how she survived in a herd in the wild. And what I didn't realize was how many times I would, I come to people in my life with a brave face. I put on a brave face or there's something I put on a smile, but that's not what I'm feeling inside. And I learned on day one with that Mustang that that wasn't going to cut it for her. She needed, I needed to have myself straight before I could come to her and have her even want to interact with me. I mean, she would just turn around and walk out of the barn. She wouldn't have anything to do with me. And so she's changed me in, in significant ways. Like I noticed that as a fighter, I used to get for my workouts, you know, I used to get so ramped up and hyped and I would listen to really intense music and get fired up and go to the gym and punch stuff. And that was my MO. And I've, it's challenged me because I can't cycle between that and then walking into the barn and throwing down some hay for Pippi. It's, she'll pick up on those vibes a mile away. So she's evolved me. She's forced me to confront my inner life in a way I had no idea was possible. It's, it's like having a therapy horse at home. And I don't know if all horses are this way or if it's just Mustangs because she's my only horse. So yeah. <laughs> but she's, yeah, she's been amazing. Well, that is an incredible testimony to a couple of things. I mean, I think that that perspective that she's telepathic is right on because, I mean, horses are like the ultimate prey animals. Yeah. And, um, so their senses are very, very keen. They They notice and sense things that we don't even recognize. And then that, that intuition, that ability to notice the vibe Mm -hmm. is extraordinary. And, And I think some horses really are very good at communicating that to you and other ones are kind of dense and don't. But um, (laughs) yeah, I think she is probably quite an, an unusual, extraordinary horse to be able to really communicate that. And for you to be able to notice and recognize the cues that she's giving you too just speaks to your ability to be sensitive and to read signs and signals and get curious and say, oh, I wonder why she's doing that. What am I doing that might be contributing to that? So it's such a cool thing to hear you talk about your relationship with her and how she's, she's changed you. That's awesome. I have not had that experience actually with a horse and I've had horses since I was a kid. Really? Yeah. See, and she's, it's funny because I think having babies was showing me this, but I didn't know it yet. And when my daughter was little, I was so stressed out. My marriage was falling apart. I was probably hormonally going through some stuff and she had colic and she would scream and scream and she wouldn't sleep and she wouldn't sleep on her own. And she was what they would say, like a hide need baby. She wouldn't sleep for anybody. It wasn't just me. You couldn't put her down in the carrier. I just never got a break and I was breaking. And that fed into what she was doing. I, there was a tie between my emotional instability and hers and I was feeding it. And as a mom, it's taken however many years of time with my kids to learn that, that my mood is reflecting on them and that the days when they're being difficult or bickery or whatever, a lot of that has to do with like the world is a mirror and whatever I'm bringing to the table and putting out there, they're reflecting it right back at me. And my kids show me that I have a new puppy. She's a a blue healer puppy. I got down in Amish country. She shows me that, you know, she's such a smart trainable dog, but if I am on edge, she's out of control. She's nipping and biting and hurting and going crazy. I need to bring myself back. And then she's chill. 
she lays on the couch. It's like, I, I think there's a lot of this in our lives, a lot of this mirroring and, and it, but one, it, you see it once you tune into it, maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you feel like you see it places? I, I do. And where it started to really show up for me was with my, my two German shepherds who are protection dogs. Mm-hmm. And I think it's perhaps because they are so good at reading energy and reading signs and signals. Ah. And, and I was very, very curious to understand kind of how they work. And so I got more in tune and I really do notice like my male hero, if you look at him, it's like, dude, that is like a monster dog. You know, my son <laughs> says like his paws are like dire wolf paws, you know, I mean, he's a big solid dude and, you know, in protection mode, he is just fearsome. And yet if I get upset or frustrated and I have that kind of energy or I raise my voice or I, I get really annoyed with myself or something and swear. He, like you can see his tail goes down, his energy contracts and he's like, Oh, I'm getting out of here. Like that's not safe. And it, it, you know, I see him do that. I'm like, Oh crap. I didn't realize that like I was feeling as overwrought as apparently I am. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it's always a great, like, Oh, Hey, hang on a mo. Like, is it really that big a deal? Why am I so upset? And usually it's not the thing in the moment is something else. But I, I think it was a lot harder for me to notice those things without having, like you were talking about, that mirror reflecting it back. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. I've been learning so much from the animals that it's funny, you know, I might be jumping the gun, but Pippi started to be an example that I would use in the self-defense classes I would teach with young girls because I was trying to kind of explain to them situational awareness and what it means to be aware of your surroundings and what's going on. And it's usually, I would ask the girls, especially in Ohio where I am, you know, how many of you have ridden horses or like horses or have a horse? And, you know, usually it's a nice proportion of the girls. And I'll talk about, you know, what it, think about what your horse does when somebody new walks into the barn and they're eating, you know, do they, do they just bolt out of their stall immediately? Do they start kicking or do they, you know, maybe turn one ear and just keep that ear trained on the new person and, you know, keep an eye on them with one eye. Maybe they adjust their body so the person's in their field of vision, but they don't react yet until they've determined there's a threat. And there's sort of levels of raised awareness until the horse would react in an extreme way. And I, I would share this with the girls, and it was really neat because it's so relatable and it, it kind of ties it all together. And it's all stuff that Pippi taught me when she first came home. And that's kind of like, you know, things I would observe her doing or things she did to me. I mean, I think maybe it's part of being a wild horse that she doesn't take any human sounds or human world things for granted. Like she'll never be totally used to what's happening in the barn or what humans do. She's always going to be a little more alert to that stuff. And and you watch her do it and you go, okay, I can see how she's tracking her world. And, and she's such a, a finely tuned, like elite world tracker. You know, I mean, she, she smells storms on the wind and she watches the woods and stuff. Like she knows, she tells me things all the time like that. I think actually you just touched on probably why I haven't had a similar experience with my horses. And by the way, I absolutely love what you said about how you use that with your, with your girls in the classes, because that is brilliant. Mm -hmm. I think one reason maybe why I haven't seen the same kind of thing with my horses is none of my horses have been wild. They've all been you know, domesticated horses that were born and raised in the middle of a bunch of people, usually in suburbia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, they're one step removed from that direct experience that Pippi has had. 
I think it, it very well could be because I grew up riding and things and, and other horses I had known were much more amenable to me. They'd let me touch their face and I wasn't scared to walk behind them. And it wasn't such a delicate dance as it is with Pippi. And, and with Pippi, it's, she does not see herself as subject to me in any way. She is like the grandma. In fact, the, the girls at the farm where she was, at the rescue where she was before I brought her home, they called Pippi one of the grandmas, these older mares who kind of were composed and in charge of themselves and would kind of look at you like, I'll accept you and I'm not going to dominate you, but watch it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's fun. She's kind of like my mentor. I love her. I just, she, she makes me laugh every day with that, oh, with that attitude. That's just awesome. I, I love your Pippi stories and I'm, I'm going to stay tuned so I, I can hear more of them as we proceed across the years. Cause I'm sure she's going to bring a lot more into your life. So. Oh, thank you. So what is your favorite self-care practice? My favorite self-care practice? Well, I would say working out. I consider to be a self-care practice. Playing guitar for me and drums is a self-care practice. And uh, if there's no time for any of those, I take it very literally. Like a good hot shower and do my hair and put on makeup and just feel pretty. That That is an act of self-care for me. So I think there, I think there are definitely levels. That's, it's difficult. I don't know. What's yours? <laughs> well, I've, I've changed mine over the years. One of them right now is just to stop what I'm doing because I seem to spend so much time working and just go outside and grab my dogs and go out and play fetch for a while, you know, cause nice. it gets me outside and I can feel the sun and the wind and, you know, or the mist or whatever it happens to be and just get up and move and have that play time. You know, I think yeah. playtime has kind of become my favorite self-care practice over the last year. And even a year ago, my my goal for 2019 or my, my theme for 2019 was if it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. And so play really became a big, big part of my life then. So, yeah, I think that's, that's my awesome. favorite one right now. Yeah. I love that. I love that because, you, you know, I mean, there are, there are fun self-care practices like play. There are obvious ones like a hot bath. But then, you know, for me, another big self-care practice, there are some really hard ones, like a hard workout is one of them, but there's also self-exploration, you know, getting up 15 minutes early to journal. I've, I've started doing that over quarantine. I have a friend who runs a, uh, a veterans organization up in Montana called Heroes and Horses, and they take wild Mustangs and they train them. And then veterans come up there and spend time in the wilderness, kind of hitting the reset button, challenging themselves, working their tails off and getting healthy and doing that self-exploration. So I was following some of the heroes and horses suggestions on, on quarantine and, you know, getting up early before the kids and journaling and, and setting an intention for the day, not in a flighty kind of sense, like I'm going to ask the universe for this and it's going to give me something or whatever, but in a very intentional way, like I'm struggling with this. This was a challenge yesterday. I regret that I raised my voice to my children, or I regret that I was impatient at this time or whatever. Why did I do that? What can I do better? How can I reframe my mindset so that I'm tackling that and I'm and I feel better about today? And that's been, you know, for me, it's a challenge, but it, because it's hard, it requires me to dig deeper or maybe confront like things that I'm leaning on that are unhealthy in my life and try to be better. Just you know, get bite off a little chunk of that every day. That's probably my most effective means of self care that I have right now, aside from all the fun stuff. <laughs> right. Well, I really like that too. I, I worked with a great coach 
in the fall. And one of the things that came up was that I had lost that time in my life every day where I did have just space to sit and think and write and process and just be rather than be engaged in doing all day long. And she was like, you know, I think you you might want to consider carving out 10 or 15 minutes or an hour or something to just have your space. Yeah. Like I was absolutely stunned when she said that because I really hadn't realized that, as you said, that's probably one of the most important ways you can take care of yourself. And yet I had sacrificed that thinking yeah. that it wasn't important. So I've been trying to build that back into my days, but um, I'm not always successful. I mean, in the last seven weeks with, with puppy chaos, it has been a lot harder to have the energy to even sit down and do something like that. But I, I love that that is one of the things that you, that you brought up because it's a really important thing for me too. Yeah. And I think it's what you said, like just now with puppy care and all that. And I think as women, when, you know, when you're talking about speaking specifically to women, I know that it was something I had, I was aware of that it was a struggle for moms and, and other women ahead of me. When I was younger, I was aware that it was a thing, let's say, that you tend to overextend yourself, that you want to take care of everybody before yourself, that you put everyone else first. But I was so profoundly selfish before I had kids that that never fully hit home. I didn't process what it meant. And having kids was such a rude awakening to the sense that my selfishness, I didn't philosophically dismantle that. That just had to go because I didn't have time to be as selfish as I'd been before. And, uh, you know, now it's expanded. Now I'm on this farm. I've got like six animals. I've got senior animals with special needs and one of them just passed away and everything is kind of puppy that's pooping everywhere. And I got kids that need homeschooling and it's chaos. And in the, at the end of all that, how many times as a woman do you finally, you know, when I'm done with, when nobody needs another thing of me and I sit on my bed at night, it's usually 11 o'clock and it's about five minutes before I'll fall asleep. And in those five minutes, I sit there and go, oh, nobody needs me. Like that's all for five minutes. It's like this sense of nobody's tugging at you. Do you know what I mean? And <laughs> I absolutely do. <laughs> every fiber of my being I absolutely do like what woman doesn't I think that's part of our build like we put everybody first and guys don't understand it so like the man he reaches for you at the end of the night and he's like why isn't she paying attention to me why doesn't she have any more time for me and it's like oh my god just I need someone to not need me for five minutes and it's it's that's a challenge it's so hard it really is well, that's, that's great. So I guess that kind of leads me into my next question, which is what advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Oh, people laugh when I say this, but it's self-discipline, 100 million percent. Because I think when I was young, I, I, I hate being told what to do. And that's fine. And you can hate what, being told what to do. And you can be a free spirit. I'm about as free of a spirit as they come. But um, if I had understood at that age, how to apply myself incrementally to build things that I wanted or become things I wanted to be, the sky was the limit and I didn't know it. And it kills me now to think about it. Like I, I interview, you know, I work for the Greenberry Foundation. I'm constantly interviewing all these high achievers, you know, the Navy SEALs and Green Berets and all these people that have done incredible things. And it's an absolute constant to the point where it's just a, like a foregone conclusion that these people are tremendously not structured, but uh, intentional in in taking daily steps towards goals and as i don't i don't know what i was waiting for at 20 and and my answer to those young people is just don't wait like 
set your course on whatever you want. And it can be, it, it can be anything. And, and you just start taking those steps because you will get there and you have all the time in the world to do it. So I, that does that sound wild to say discipline, self-discipline? It makes a lot of sense. And I, I guess it, it makes me wonder what you think gets in the way of people doing that, like actually setting a goal and taking those small steps in a particular direction. I think for me, it was two things. I thought that, I mean, as all young people do, they think they're going to live forever and you think you have all the time in the world. So there was a lack of sense of urgency, number one. But uh, I think number two, how do I, how do I put this? I think, and I have, I have a lot of strong opinions about education and the way the educational system works. You know, I spent 12 years in college and came out a little bit of a, a skeptic about what universities provide anymore in this day and age. And I think that the amount of time I spent being educated caused me to become somewhat submissive in certain areas of my life. So I was accustomed from the age of like six through 29 to wait to be told what to do. And you wait until the teacher says go and they tell you what to do and you do the thing. And if it's not time to do it, you're not allowed to jump the gun. You got to wait. And initiative was never factored into that process. Like when it came time to write my doctoral dissertation, I kind of floundered because I hadn't, how had I not thought of it? I hadn't been thinking of it. It's insane how, how much I was just going through the flow, you know, going with the flow. Like I love to snowboard. I love to paddleboard, love board sports. I love to ride. And apparently that's true in life too. I'll ride a wave as far as I can ride the wave. And that's what I was doing is I was riding waves without setting a course. And it's not a worthless way to live your life. It's just, I live my life really very differently now at 42, you know, I, I still love to ride. And I think riding life like you're surfing is a great way to exhibit adaptability in your daily life. But you got to have an idea of where you want to be on the shore, like when the ride's over. And I have a better idea of that now than I did then, I think. That is really fascinating to hear because two things. I mean, I really relate to this idea of riding the waves. That's one of the ways that I describe how I get through life. I don't ever feel like I'm in balance. I always feel like I'm just surfing the waves. <laughs> and as long as I don't <laughs> right. get dunked too many times, I'm good. But in terms of the educational system, this is something that I really got confronted by when I my kids were ready to go to school. And I didn't want them to go to a place where it was like, it just just follow the program. Like, like we know what you need to learn and right. so just like follow the steps. And I wanted to go somewhere that was more focused on them. And so that's how three out of my four kids actually ended up um, getting a Waldorf education. And what I loved about that was that it integrated so many different aspects of learning. It wasn't sit at your desk and be taught at. It was unfold, like see how things unfold and how things interconnect. and was very much, it was shaped and guided and led by the teacher, but there was so much room for the individual. And even when they were doing things like in first grade, they learn the letters, but they're not sitting with a, a piece of paper with the letters already outlined where they just trace over them. They were, they were looking at a picture on the board that the teacher had drawn with chalk that was a beautiful scene that incorporated the letter and it had a story mm-hmm. and and they were creating that in their main lesson books. And everybody, of course, created their own main lesson book. 
and they did their own version of the picture. And it wasn't like, well, it has to look exactly like the teacher did it or you fail. It was like every individual person created their picture, their version of that. And so what I didn't realize in terms of how powerful that learning process was, I didn't realize that until my oldest son was looking for high schools. Yeah. Did tours at various high schools. And after we had gone to several of them, um, especially after we had watched their science demonstrations and things, we -hmm. were sort of debriefing. And he said, well, mom, like I totally didn't understand why you wanted me to go to a Waldorf school, but I get it now because at the places we just visited, like they told us what the experiment was going to be they told us what was going to happen and what the result was going to be. And then we just watched it all happen the way they said it was going to. Right. And at the Waldorf school, like we would have done an experiment, but it would have been, okay, here's what you're going to do. Do it. Write your observations or express your observations about what you saw happening or what you experienced happening. And then Tell us, let's have a conversation about why do you think that happened? What do you think caused that? How did you think that was connected? And he said, you know, so like, I don't like being told that everybody already knows the answers and I'm just kind of getting it. I like finding it out. And I think that's what you were talking about, about, you know, you just kind of went along through the process. Yeah. And you would have been so much better served if it was like, hey, like, Alice, like, where do you really want to go? What are right. you super interested in? And how do you want to get there? As opposed to, well, here's the process and here are the steps you got to go through. Right. And here are the tools. Because what I, you're right. I mean, I went through life, you know, like, you know, when I worked at the VA, you know, I'm looking for standard operating procedures. Like, well, there's no SOP for this. So it's not a thing. You have to, you have to stay in your channel. You stay in your lane. And I had a friend recently say to me, and actually it's Micah. He's the guy who runs the Heroes and Horses Place was saying, you know, they, our educational system is fixated on producing more industrial workers to fill our industrial system and, and fulfill the needs. You know, we we're creating thinkers who are able to go and learn a role and, and fulfill that role and do fine. It's, you know, creativity, originality. And this is when I was growing up. I mean, and you have to understand, like I was, you know me, I'm a wild woman, but I ended up for various reasons at this all girls prep school in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is, I don't know if you've, you know, that show tiny fires everywhere or whatever it's on Hulu. And I mean, if you want to see Shaker Heights, Reese Witherspoon plays this Shaker woman. It is spot on. And it's, you're going to watch it and think, no, this is hyperbole. She's overacting. There's no way anybody acts this like stereotypically preppy, handbooky, waspy, stifled, stuffy way. But then you realize, no, no, that is exactly precisely it. It's scary accurate. I've never seen anything that so aptly captures the culture I grew up in as that. It wasn't where I lived, but it's where I went to school because my mom taught up there. And uh, I was a complete I was a problem at that school from day one for them. I was outspoken. I was opinionated. I was the one that would point at the elephant in the room and say, hey, there's an elephant in the room. And, you know, I, I hated the dress code and I hated the rules and I was pushing the boundaries and they couldn't do much about it because I got like straight A's. So I wasn't, I was smart enough to not be like problematic enough that they could just shoehorn me and say she's trouble. But like, I was constantly stirring the pot. And because of that, you know, I also learned how badly that system wanted to crush individualism 
and, and how heavy that, that weight is on you when you're trying to do your own thing. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what to say about it, except that I went from there to the university of Virginia, to the university of Pennsylvania, received a top tier education that I'm finally making good use of, but on an interpersonal level, on a, on a, on a level in terms of adulting and my ability to like, like survive in the real world, I was, I was starved. I had no idea. You know, I always joke with people that I was educated to be a courtesan. Like I remember reading about courtesans in Italian, my Italian literature studies. And, you know, these, the most educated women in Europe were either nuns or they were the prostitutes and they would go and entertain these powerful, wealthy men and, and have lovely conversations in the salons and be beautiful and entertaining. And I was like, well, that's what I was really educated to do is to be this wonderful, interesting support player to the men who were actually doing the interesting things. It's like, that's the best I could say about any of it. It, it, the pieces didn't fit. They didn't make sense. They still don't totally make sense. And it's just one of, I can't believe I'm being this raw, by the way, in public, it's just coming out of my mouth. It's just been one of the confounding things about being a woman in this world that I'm still trying to make sense of and figure out how to raise my daughter differently, you know, and, and avoid that stuff. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for being that raw because it absolutely resonates with me. Does it? Um, oh my God. I was so nervous when I said all that. Oh my gosh, for sure. And I just knowing, knowing you, like, I can't even imagine you in that environment in part because I can relate. Well, one of the things in my, my childhood was we lived in India for a year and I went to school in a convent. Oh my gosh. Really? And yeah. I was, I was not really the convent kind of a girl. You think? Okay. (laughs) And I got into trouble for all kinds of things, you know, including embroidery was one of the things that we had to do. And I wanted to embroider Snoopy in his doghouse on my tablecloth. Awesome. And that caused a firestorm of incredible proportions because dogs are not looked on in India the same way (laughs) that they are in the U.S., Yes. You certainly wouldn't put such a dirty, foul creature on a tablecloth. And you know, the nuns were very unhappy. And I ended up actually having to, I still did that tablecloth, but it was for me. And I had to do another one that had roses on it so that I would be acceptable. Yeah, I did not fit too wow. well that. So I can totally relate. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And, you know, like all that being said, as far as being a mom of girls, I, I will say, I'm so excited for my daughter because the world is so different now. Like my next door neighbor is an amazing example. They, they're raising three awesome, spunky, creative, little, adorable, freckled little girls who, you know, mom's an artist, dad's a teacher. They're, they're so cool and enlightened and just rad. They're just a wonderful, loving family. And I was blessed that we moved in next door to them and that my kids are going to grow up next to their kids and seeing the way girls are growing up nowadays that they've never been told that they can't or that they're less. I was just telling a friend this morning that I grew up with messages that were very well-intentioned kind of leftovers from 70s feminine, like, or 70s feminism, like anything boys can do, girls can do better or never underestimate the power of a woman. And my takeaway was those statements just taught me that somebody thinks I'm less than my brothers. Somebody somewhere thinks that I was either born weaker or I am weaker and I've got to prove something. Which one is it? I don't know. But the more I look at my own psychology and my life trajectory, I think it's like, it's like, it instilled in me almost a pathological need to prove that I can beat guys at things. And, you know, that everything I picked in my life growing up, I'd pick the things I thought that the only the boys thought they could do, like 
like a guitar and snowboarding at the time, you know, in the nineties, when I was doing that stuff, girls didn't do that stuff. Boxing, you know, it, it's, it's followed a certain path. And, and I just wonder if there's that, that connection of just needing to prove something. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can definitely see that. And I do relate to you being the mother of a daughter. Cause I have two daughters. I have two boys and two girls. And yeah. Yeah, my daughters are now in their 20s, and they have grown up differently than I did, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So life is changing, and yet there are definitely messages that have to be, I guess, illuminated because they're a little more subtle now. Yeah. Still have an effect. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I love that that whole that whole little, I won't call it a digression because that was a perfect, <laughs> a perfect little section right there. That was great. And it, it oh, leads me because I wanted to ask you about your educational path because I haven't met very many people who have the same kind of education that you do. And I'm really curious, like, how did you end up with three master's degrees and a PhD? Um, it was just kind of a long, a long path and changing directions on that path at different times. And that required altering my course of study, which required gaining different certifications and things like that. So, I mean, it's not, it's not as glamorous as it might sound. It's just sort of the way the cookies crumbled. And, uh, you know, I mean, for me, that was all just a, a great big exercise in learning how to learn and how to be a learner and, and, um, how to express those thoughts and find answers and, and all, and all of that good stuff. And yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I look back on all of it as this exercise in endurance, which was so cool. And I remember meeting my, the guy who turned out to be my dissertation advisor the first time when I visited Penn and we talked and I said, what's the secret to finishing? Is it, you know, do you have to be brilliant? And he said, you don't have to be brilliant. Those aren't always the people that finish. The finishers are the ones who don't fall behind. And he said, if you think everything you ever do has to be perfect, you're not going to turn it in on time. You'll get buried under a pile of late work and you'll drop out. That's what people do. And I followed that advice religiously the whole time I was there and just kept swimming and you just keep going. And before you know it, it it happens. And that, that was true in my case, in the humanities, I know in the sciences, it's probably different, but um, I think the biggest gift for me in all of, in all the different directions I had to go in ultimately ending up with a degree in comparative literature and literary theory was the amount of literature and philosophy I ended up being exposed to and the amount of thought and experience because when you look back especially historically you know in the medieval period which is where I ended up focusing you know you're looking back a thousand years two thousand years into the classics you're looking at a time when it wasn't to be taken for granted that someone could just sit and write something down. It wasn't easy. And so when someone sat down and wanted to make a record of something, it was important and it, it was a big deal. And they felt strongly about this. And they, you know, people wrote about things like age and the fear of death and what's coming next and the waning of their youth and what does it mean to live a good life? What constitutes a good life? Can money make you happy? Why are people inhumane to one another? It just, they, they tackled enormous questions and from so many different angles, not just philosophers, but, but in fact, I think literature is almost more free to tackle some of those philosophical questions creatively and gets deeper than philosophy ever could because philosophy is so self-conscious and nervous about being wrong. And I think that for me was the, what drove me through that whole program. It wasn't ever 
more than pure curiosity. Like I was digging and excavating because, because I felt like I was gaining contact with all these people from hundreds of thousands of years ago who had answers to the big questions. And the funny part for me now coming out of it is I still see those threads everywhere I go and in everything I'm doing. And it's not that I have all the answers, of course not, but it's that I feel like I, I know where someone else thought about that. So when I hear a question or, or a problem or a challenge or in my work, you know, people talk to me and I help them write books, write their life stories, military memoirs and stuff like that. You know, they'll tell me something that feels very unique and very personal and very raw to them. And it's funny because I'm always usually able to connect that with something else I've read somewhere and, and show them like, hey, this isn't just you. Or historically, people said this about that problem that, that you're having right now. And, and it, it builds out a framework in, through history and through time with, with literature and thoughts and people. You know, my mom's a huge reader. And she's just always, when I was a kid, my mom used to say, a good book is a good friend. <laughs> and we joke about it today. But I think, I always think about my mom when I have these thoughts because it's like if you're a reader and, and you really delve into the best thought, the most enduring thought throughout history, it's like those people are your close personal friends, Homer, Dante, Ovid, you know, Thoreau, right? They'll sit down and tell you everything and you just have to pick up the book. And to me, that's like, it's still one of the great marvels of life. I think that's why I can't get enough of reading. So that's my like long and geeky digression into education, I guess. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like went all over the place with that one, but that's Yeah, I, I love it. And I wanted to ask you, like, how did you become a professional writer and who are some of the people that you've collaborated with? It all kind of started organically. I was just getting divorced and was working on some fundraising and, uh, eventually reconnected with a childhood friend locally who's a guy named Jeff Boss and he was a former Navy SEAL and uh, Jeff was helping on this fundraiser for the SEAL Future Foundation and the Special Operations Warrior Foundation and so as we were collaborating you know we were talking about things because he was kind of at the time beginning a writing and coaching career and he mentioned that he had written some things in the military and I said you should send them to me I have a degree in literature let me see it he was like really so Jeff sent me everything over and we had this awesome collaboration um, just as I was the editor for his book. What, what turned out to be his book, Navigating Chaos, that ended up doing really well for him. And uh, I was privileged to be the first reader of, of his stuff. And that project with Jeff, I was, I was just really blessed to work with him because he's so well-respected and well-loved in his community. And um, that started to lead other people to me. I think people who knew Jeff, so a couple of smaller projects and then a, a bigger one with a uh, former army ranger named JC Glick. That was my first true collaboration. We co-authored a book called Meditations of an Army Ranger. And the idea was that we were trying to think about the, the intention Marcus Aurelius had when he wrote his meditations and use that same intention to craft a book that, that shares some of the wisdom that JC felt like he had taken away from his years of service in the army. And so that, that was a good one. And, and, you know, along the same time, I was writing a lot on my own, just, I was working at the VA and I've always, I'm very passionate about veterans issues. And some of those articles began to gain a little bit of a foothold and they would catch people's eyes. So um, one of those articles I wrote ended up connecting me with a wonderful woman at the Green Beret Foundation named Fran Westling in the Cincinnati chapter of the Green Beret Foundation. And, and that, 
led me into my work writing now with the Green Beret Foundation and uh, some other folks I've met through there. Uh, a wonderful guy named Kevin Flake, who's a former Green Beret, who has a really, really inspiring story. And he does a lot of speaking on that on these topics. I'm doing a book with Kevin right now and, and have other projects on the burners and in the works. So it, but it was very much, it was something I used to talk to Jeff about, Jeff Boss, when he was doing his uh, coaching career and, and business coaching and things like that with people. I was first getting divorced and I had been a stay-at-home mom. I had I had given up my academic career to follow my husband's job as he was a banker and finance guy. And it made more sense to do that. I had to start from scratch. I was never working as a professor or anything like that. And it was a conversation with Jeff where he said the crux of some different factors is where your your spot is in the world. He said, what are your skills? What is a need you can identify in the world with your skills? And where's your passion and your purpose lie? And if you can find where those things intersect, you, you're you in the sweet spot. You got you can make that work for you. And that was all I knew is I, I knew I could write. You know, the only thing I'm, I know I, I can, I know I can do that, right? I know what I'm passionate about. I want to serve my country and I know who needs my voice. And I, and I knew there was a need there. I know there's a lot of people have stories to tell, but feel an anxiety about getting that stuff down on paper. And if I can help those people, I'm doing a service. And that was, that was when I decided to really focus my efforts on working within that realm and trying to build out from there. And it's been good so far. That is awesome. I, I'm really glad I asked that question because I have seen some of the things you've written, but not all. And I do really value that you are helping people who have a story to tell and who need a voice to actually tell their stories and bring it out into the world because so many of us need to hear those stories. And so, yeah, you really are a catalyst for that. And, and it's, that is, I love the, the crux of your talents and interests that, that was a great way to look at it. So that, that's great. I love it. Yeah. I love that. That was Jeff. Yeah. I can't take credit for it. He's a brilliant, he's a brilliant guy. Yeah. And the other piece for me, and you know, I keep remembering, sometimes I, I don't speak to like the woman specific stuff and I love having a moment to talk to you and actually share the lessons I've learned as a mom too, because I this is the first time I've been interviewed by another woman, is it was really important to me when I went to work after being a stay-at-home mom. You know, my if life were perfect, I would be with my kids all the time. That's what I wanted to do. And I realized that whatever I did, it wasn't enough to me just to put food on the table for them because I needed one day down the line, if they ever said, mom, why weren't you there for me at my school play? Or why weren't you there for me that day I was sick? I needed to feel like whatever I was doing with my life was important enough that I could say to them, we made a sacrifice together, but it was worth it because we were doing this. We were serving someone somehow. And, you know, for me and my children have been growing up very patriotic and they really do. I feel like they really are learning what it means to serve and, and how to respect those who have served and, and learning about the, the ways to be part of a support effort. If you're not at the tip of the spear, so to speak, you know, all of those things have helped me make peace with the time I can't be with them, feeling like the what I'm offering to the world is meaningful in, in whatever way I can, you know? Well, yes. And you are also doing something that is very important to me in my life and as a mom, which is you are doing work that is meaningful and has value and that uses your gifts and talents. You are not just like going out and doing a thing that pays you. 
you're doing something powerful and making a difference, making an impact. So you, you're being an incredible role model to both of your kids and giving them that example that, yes, there are options where you can, you can get a job that pays you really well and you can get all the things because you have the money, but you may find out that that's actually pretty empty. And yeah, what you're doing is you're saying, like, find that thing that lights you up, find the thing that has value and meaning and do that. And that's really where success lies. Yeah. And I think I see it all the time. I think I've lived long enough and seen enough to see it and to know. When I lived in New York City, when I was first married and I was working as a makeup artist at Sephora, and it was fascinating because I was on the intersection of 59th Street and Central Park West. So I was right there. I had everything from homeless drag queens that lived in Central Park to ladies with 10 carat diamond rings coming down from their apartment to shop in my store, celebrity, the whole bit. But you could see when you do makeup, it's such an intimate engagement with someone. There's insecurities come out. They privately share things with you and, you know, you, you experience all that. And I mean, it became apparent right away, like, like the different, I don't know how to describe this. I saw so many lonely women who were living a a lifestyle in the tens of millions of dollars. And you think about that and you think somebody's providing that lifestyle. He's not here. She comes in every day to look at eye cream because there's nothing else. Like life is feeling empty. And it became living in New York for me was such a crash course in all the things money can't buy. And the things I missed about living in the country, like I do now again, you know, walking by the horses on uh, 59th street that were chained up to those carts and they were sad, dirty, broken horses. And that was so hard for me. I had to stop walking on that street. You know, I think, you know, you go to that Mecca of, of greed and indulgence and success and the sky's the limit. You can't make it there. You can't make it anywhere, whatever. And, you know, I would watch at the time, those fantasy shows about New York, like sex in the city and gossip girl. And I was young and idealistic. I thought somewhere that dream was going to happen. And instead, what I saw was a reality that was so far from that. The reality I saw was just reinforcing that all of these like fundamental values I grew up with in Ohio being raised by my down-to-earth family were way more on track than what I thought I was supposed to be striving for in New York. You know, family, nature, animals, like these things are far more important than the world might let you think when you start chasing that like ghost of fame and fortune. Yeah. Wow. You really did get a crash course. And I think it's so cool that ultimately you've ended up back in the environment that really supports you, supports your values, and was the foundation, even though you traveled all over the place before you landed back in Ohio at your farm. You know, you really did make a massive, a massive excursion out into other parts of the world. And, um, return back, which is kind of what I've done too, because I grew up in rural Oklahoma. Granted, I was in a university town when I was little, but it was, it was still rural. I mean, I had a big yard. I had dogs, cats, I had a horse, you know, that was, that was how I grew up. And here I am now I'm 57 now heading to 58 and I'm, I'm back in that rural environment only even better and it's exactly because of the same thing. It's like, this is really, this is where I feel grounded. This is where I can breathe. 
And this is where I actually feel supported enough to go out in the world and do the work that is important to me. Yes. And I think, you know, for my kids, that emphasis I feel on teaching them these fundamental skills like building fires and searching for tinder and identifying edible plants and building shelters and all that. It's it's not that we're doomsday preppers, but it's it's that there's these fundamental skills like, hey, let's walk before we run. You're gonna learn philosophy run day one day and, and you'll learn maybe you'll learn to fly a, you know, I don't know, some type of space plane to Mars, whatever you're gonna do in 50 years. But for now, let's learn to be a human. Like what you know? How, how do humans survive on the planet, on your planet Earth? I mean, we don't even think we're empowered to cut our own hair. You know, that's that's the culture and the world we live in. And it's there's something so empowering. Like we haven't lost our head in this COVID thing because it doesn't freak us out. We live on a farm. We're good. We can take care of ourselves. We're planting our garden, and everything's cool. If we didn't have water, we'd have a problem. In fact, we had our well go out earlier this year. And we had a problem, <laughs> but we're just we worked through it. We worked through these things and. So I think that living close to the earth, and and I don't mean to idealize country life and say that it's just easy and everything's perfect. I mean, I think if anything, the less, the fewer distractions you have, the harder you have to work on your relationships and, you know, work with your family. Like we didn't, we don't have a TV. We just occasionally put shows on the computer. So that not having that distraction, it makes it harder. A lot more stuff comes to the surface with the kids and there's a lot more to work through. But at least it's real. It's not a fantasy. It's not like New York, which is to me like Disneyland. It's just a facade and like a mecca of greed. You know, that was kind of like my my take on the whole thing by the time I left. I was so glad to be done with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. That's cool. And I love that that is, you know, that's where you've come come back to. And you're right that it just because you're in a rural area on a farm in the country doesn't mean that it's easy. But it sure is wonderful. Oh, it sure is. It's the best thing in the world. And it makes you proud to be an American, right? It all ties back. You know, I always think about that with the service members I work with. And I, I, I've always, I always love to ask people, what's the best way someone can truly thank you for your service, right? Because people don't always like to just hear that trite, I said, thank you for your service. So now it's off. Now the moral imperative to care that you served is off my shoulders. The, you know, it's what can you do to show people? And one of the things that comes up all, all again and again is make this a country worth defending. Remember that. And live a meaningful life that's true and good and honest and love your neighbor. Like, do good, do good with the freedom that you have. Um, I think that's so inspiring. I just absolutely love that. When people yeah. tell me that, I get like goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that cool? I love that. That's great. Yeah. Well, it, it also it makes me now want to move into your journey into teaching self defense. So I'm really curious about your athletic background and how you got into boxing and then how you ended up in the self-defense world. Sure. It's funny. I grew up with two brothers that are both very like alpha male, very athletic, big, strong, ultra competitive guys. And uh, my dad, when he was around, was very much part of that also. So we were always very sporty and outside constantly as kids. And, um, you know, I never felt like being a girl was a disadvantage until it was a disadvantage. Like there are moments in my life that stood out, like playing Ewoks with the neighbors because this was the early 80s and that's what you do. And they told me, you're a girl Ewok. You stay in the treehouse. We're going to go fight and we'll come back. And I was like, well, what? Or like playing Top Gun pilots on our bikes. And the guys were like, well, you're a girl. Girls aren't the Top Gun pilots. So you got to be over there. You're going to be the teacher. And again, what? 
you know, growing up, my dad and my brothers love Rocky movies. We would watch Rocky and I would just get lit up by like the violence and the competition and the intensity and the training and the self-sacrifice. And it just like, it lights up anybody, but there was this limit like, yeah, but that's not for you. You're a girl. And in high school, watching my older brother wrestle that it got me that same way. I felt just that light up feeling of like, God, it's just that intensity and that one-on-one confrontation and the courage and dedication that goes on behind the scenes that plays out on the mat, like that whole human drama. I was obsessed with it from an outsider's perspective because I'm a girl and girls didn't wrestle in the nineties. And, um, it was just constantly that, you know, I remember I would, I was constantly aware of that, that dynamic, like the things that were off limits to me because I was a girl. I found recently an essay I wrote in high school down in my basement about uh, Romeo and Juliet. And I was talking about how unfair it was that Romeo could roam around the town with his friends all the time. And Juliet was like locked at home with her people. She couldn't do anything because she was a girl. And it just, it pissed me off because it's not who I am. I'm not, and, and I was always too wild for what the world would accept from me as a girl. And I was always pissing people off with that from my own family. You know, I was too big. I was too loud. I, you know, I'm not even the, the skinniest woman in my family. I have this petite gorgeous grandmother and this petite curvy beautiful mother and then here I come I'm like a damn bull in a china shop you know and it's just I mean I'm not a big girl but I'm strong and I just didn't fit that elegance that those women had I didn't know where it fit and there was one time I said something about it in high school and we had this teacher that would sometimes be there at my high school she was an Olympic decathlete is that what it is where they cross-country ski and they shoot and do stuff and she like grabbed me by the mirror she's like you're built just like me She's like, you remember that you're built like an athlete. Don't you ever criticize yourself? And I just like stopped. And I was like, whoa, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just different. It's I'm not Kate Moss. It was the nineties. You know, people want to be Kate Moss. It's not me. So anyway, I excelled at field hockey, did all that. Um, started going on these wilderness trips by the end of high school, these outward bound kind of trips and discovered I excelled there too, because I was strong and I had endurance. And I just, I, I had that mental toughness a lot that, other people would break and I didn't break. And I just, I started to learn that was an asset and whatever. So that stuff was like the underpinning. And uh, I was sexually assaulted. Actually, believe it or not, I was a debutante. It was the night of my debutante ball in 1998. And it was an acquaintance. And, you know, it was the kind of thing where everybody was drinking and I had too much and wasn't experienced with alcohol and didn't know what I was doing and didn't understand what was going on until it was too late. And, um, I explicitly remember the thought in my head while this was happening. It's too late to fight. Like it, I, you know, the words came to me like fight. No, why? It's oh, it's almost over. It's almost over. And you'll never forget that if you make that choice. And it's, you know, now I'm a fighter. I'm a trained fighter. I'm a boxer. I'm an athlete. I know some jujitsu. I know some Muay Thai. I've got, a bunch of different skills. I've got my combative striking skills. I could, you know, there's a lot of different stuff I can do. I'm adept with weapons. There's all kinds of things. And knowing what I know now, like having been in the fight gym, sparred guys, trained with guys, you know, I can size him up. He was probably about 145 pounds. He's a soccer player. I could have kicked that dude's ass. I could have kicked his ass at 18, me at 42. But at the time, I didn't have the skills or the training or the mindset. I had nothing. So I walked away from that experience. I shared it with a couple people, had to go back to college. And the worst part of it was, was that in the culture of 1998, that wasn't, 
nobody had necessarily agreed that that's what had happened to me. At that time, I heard things like, well, these things happen between friends. Or girls would say, oh, a guy did that to me too once. He just stuck it in. It just happens. And I was like, no, th- this isn't right. This shouldn't happen. And I, I, I turned all that stuff inward and got sick. I just, I became just a walking panic attack for like two months. I lost like 20 pounds. I, just, I couldn't function. And I had to, I called my parents. I said, I want to come home. And they were like, you're not leaving school. So figure it the fuck out. So I, uh, I, I started to, to turn a corner. I went to a take back the night rally and, uh, I heard, I can't remember if that was that spring. I might be jumping the gun. Anyway, what ultimately ended up happening that spring, so a few months after the sexual assault, was um, I, I found out that I could learn to snowboard. And if I uh, joined the snowboard team and paid a certain amount of money, I could just get rides to the mountain, whatever. So I started going up there. And suddenly, and I think this has happened to me in my life, at times when I was suffering from like a great inner pain, I went zero fucks on the outside. So just like becoming a boxer in the middle of my divorce, like, that inner pain you can't even conceive in your mind. So you get punched in the face and it translates to something your body understands like, Oh, that hurt. That's why I feel pain. You know, it's, it, it like externalizes what's hurting inside you. So the roughness of snowboarding and the wrecking myself and the, and the daredeviling of all of that at that time became the outlet for whatever I felt inside. So snowboarding became this tremendously empowering thing for me that got me through a lot of pain and, and, and made me feel stronger and better and bigger than bad things that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking like, it, it just makes complete total sense to me that the engaging in something really physical where you do get kind of battered and bruised and you're testing yourself and going kind of beyond your limits is a very natural response to the inner emotional turmoil and pain. It's like, if you can't quite navigate through the inner landscape, at least you can do something on the outer world where you start to feel some sense of power, maybe not control, but at least power. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I think that for those of us who are mentally tough in whatever way, we can call that whatever we want, but we're also really, really good at like stuffing things down. You know, my house burned down when I was 12 years old or 13, right before I turned 13, lost everything. And, you know, a year before that, I changed schools and my parents got divorced. So I went from, you know, all new friends, all new school, all new family situation in the, ma- you know, within two years period. I mean, it changed me. I feel it made me stronger, it made me what I call more resilient. But it also, by resilient, I also mean it taught me to set that pain aside and power through pain. It's not always a good thing. And it's funny because, you know, about a month ago, I was forced to confront all of that when my dog, she was my first, one of my first pets I ever had, and she passed away from cancer. And it was really a sad and long and kind of brutal goodbye. And um, because I knew why I was feeling what I was feeling, I knew it was grief. And when I finally felt just abject grief and I had a name for it, it like mirrored back through my whole life and I could see all the other times I was grieving that I didn't know were grief. Like I didn't, I didn't have the words that it was grief, but it was grief. And it's really intriguing. Like it was an intriguing experience to confront death face to face like that with so much love and so much intensity. And uh, 
I think that I grieved at the time when I lost her, I grieved a lot of things that I had not yet grieved. Like I had set them, I'd buried them. And, and, you know, brave people do that, right? Fighters do that. I mean, and I'll tell people in the gym all the time, because, you know, now I train in the fight gym and I'm not doing so much boxing competitively. I'm not competing at this point. I tore my rotator cuff a year ago and it's never been really the same. Just, I just train now. But, uh, you know, I joke, but like none of us are psychologically normal. I mean, who, who gets punched in the face for fun? I mean, it's not, it's not a thing. We have something we're trying to deal with in there. We can call it whatever we want, but I just don't believe it. You know? Well, it's a good temporary bandaid. Yeah. But ultimately to be healthy, you do benefit from doing what you did, which was having an event where all of that stuff that you stuffed comes up and you can finally process it and deal with it. And and I think that that experience that you had of, of one loss that, that caused grief sort of bringing up all of those other situations where there was a loss, you know, if it wasn't a death, it was a different kind of a loss that caused grief. I think that is the kind of thing that can be a real catalyst for healing. Yeah, it can be. And I think that, in all of that, and this sort of brings it back, I know we were going to talk, you that you wanted to talk a little bit about self-defense. And I think empowerment is also about control or maybe about not necessarily control because you can't control is an illusion, but you can be prepared. You can't control the world, but you can be prepared. And the more training you have and the more you're able to allow these experiences to help you adapt so you're better prepared for the next experience you're growing and like losing fifi my my puppy she affected the way i see every animal in my life now and i i brought home a new puppy a week later and i i look her in the eyes and i feel like i see her i know what it's like now to look your dog in the eyes as she dies and watch her eyes as she goes from your arms and knowing that i can look at her eyes now and it gives that much more meaning to every moment I have with her starting on day one. Getting divorced and losing 50% of my time with my kids changed forever the tenderness of our interactions. It's, I'm never the one, you know, I'm, I, I, get ex- I get tired of my kids and get mad at them all the time and all that kind of stuff like everyone else. But there's still that understanding that it's forced upon me that this is precious. And so there's that, there's like the grief and then there's the growing into the space and I think it's the same with, you know, with an assault. Once you've been through violence, you become resolved that this is never going to happen again. And you get strong and you learn to fight. And how is that any different than, you know, falling down snowboarding and figuring out, okay, I got I to gotta tweak this. I got to tweak that. I'm going to adjust these things. And next time I'm not going to wreck myself when I do that. It's, it's all part of, of growth. It, you just got to be open to it because growth is scary, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a great place to sort of segue into talking about how you got into the world of self-defense and what you're currently doing in your teaching role. Yeah. So I was boxing for fitness between both, between kids. My, my brother got me into boxing and I started doing some cardio boxing and all that. It, uh, it became my need to prove myself, of course, that I ended up walking into a fight gym because I had, it's a long story. I'd applied to be a you know, to work at the cardio boxing gym and they were kind of like hemming and hawing and they'd been hiring these ditzy chicks that didn't actually box, but looked really good in 
a sports bra to come and do the work. And it was just, I was like, that's it. I'm going to prove it to you guys. And that's when I went to the MMA gym and was like, sign me up, let's go. And, you know, took my first flight and the rest was history. But in the process of all that, when I was working with Seal Future Foundation, I connect, I went to a Seal, a Seal Navy Seal Foundation event in Pittsburgh and met a guy named Dom Rosso of Dynamis Alliance. And Dom spoke and brought down the house. And I had to find him after. I was like, you're, you're an incredible man. You inspire everyone around here. I got to work with you. What can we do? And uh, I told him what I was planning in Cleveland. And Dom and I decided to join forces. And he ended up coming out to that event, speaking at the event I hosted, and then hosting uh, a combatives fundraiser the next day to raise money for the So Future Foundation. So Dom was my first exposure to all things uh, related to combatives training. And I was absolutely hooked. Like for me, it, it felt like a niche, you know, I, it, it tied together all those things that kind of were always like too much, you know, like I'm, I'm too loud. I'm too bold. I'm too big. I'm too strong. I'm too whatever. Well, suddenly these are assets. What's this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like I don't wait, this doesn't have to look pretty. It doesn't have to be graceful. There's no choreography to it. It's violence of action and aggression. And that's all I was like, I've got, you got me. I'm, I'm sold. Uh, and so I just loved it. And, and that first fun, that first uh, training session with Dom got me hooked. And then I started to travel and train with him some uh, and did some combative pistol training, combative blade training. I did another blade training with this crazy guy who had a gym in Cleveland who's no longer here, but that was just violent. I got my nose broken and it was, but it was wonderful. Like the most fulfilling, empowering violence you could be a part of, you know, you learn what you're capable of, right? I don't need to tell you because you know that. Yeah. Well, I love that you just called it empowering violence because I think that a lot of women are very afraid of violence and don't understand that there is a flip side to it. So I'd love if you could kind of dig into that a little bit too. For sure. Well, you know, it's funny. Like I remember growing up and, you know, this was my parents were raised. They were World War II baby boomer generation. Don't hit a girl, guys. Don't hit your sister. And I get that. That's fair. We don't have those rules in my house. (laughs) The rules in my house are like, if you strike someone, don't be surprised when you get hit back. You know, if you're going to escalate force and you're going to take it to that level, be ready and be prepared and take what you get. I don't feel sorry for you. You know, there's a very different dialogue surrounding violence in a house like mine where these kids are spending half their time in an MMA gym and they're surrounded by fighters and the children of fighters who have a very different approach to life, but that's very similar. You know, it's that same respect that we have in the gym for, for each other you know, like when you're sparring with somebody, right? You tell them you want to go light, they go light, everything's cool. When someone starts to escalate, you see that stuff escalate. And it doesn't matter if it's two white belts in jujitsu or if it's pro boxers. We had a guy training for a fight on, on Showtime not long ago in the gym and sometimes stuff would get heated in his sparring, you know? You be prepared for that. That's how those dynamics work and animals fight like that. You put two dogs together, they'll play and it can turn into a fight pretty quick. And so I think it's just, um, that's, you know, where when I talk about like that article you you mentioned that I wrote, Embrace the Violence, it's more just acknowledge the reality of violence in your world and don't shy away from it. And I think one of my favorite people who ever talked about this um, was Andy Stump. He's a SEAL who does a podcast called Cleared Hot. Yes, that's one of my favorites. I love, I love what he says. He's brilliant. And he, some of the stuff Andy says about violence is so spot on and, and just illuminating, right? Because he's seen so much more firsthand violence than I have in the real world. But about how many people there are in the world that will see American kindness and open-heartedness as nothing more than weakness to be exploited. And 
that's a really hard thing to wrap your head around. When you're a good person, you do a good, honest life. You go to church every Sunday, whatever you do, go to temple, synagogue. I don't know. But all of, all of that, that stuff, you know, if you aren't prepared for the reality that there truly are people in the world that don't see it the way you do, if your world butts up against theirs, you'll be blindsided. And that's what happened to me. I mean, and, you know, it happens to people in all manner of different ways. I have a, a friend who was out running not long ago and a guy had just got out of prison and he just, at 6 a.m. decided to swerve his car across the street and hit her. And it was horrible. And then he got out of his car and said and did some other things. It's, you know, probably private for her, but it's, it sounds horrifying. And um, you just, she was minding her own business. These things happen. And uh, to go back to when I was a kid, the message that, you know, little girls received in my generation, it wasn't just my family, it was everyone's, don't hit a girl. What you're telling that girl is she can't take it. She can't handle it. And I say, fuck that. If you do that to my daughter, she knows to go straight for your nuts. And she does to her brother. I mean, you'll make that mistake one time. You know, she'll, she's, she's put kids in an armbar you know, before. I mean, she's not like a violent girl. She's a beautiful, lovely, compassionate, sweet, gentle, artistic, animal loving little girl. But she's never been told that she's less or that she's weaker. That's not even in her self-concept. And I think I, I see it in her way of being in the world. I want that for her. So I had my, 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 uh, I've, I've had it, I've heard it said before, and I think it's really true that the most dangerous person in the room isn't the one who's boasting and trying to start the fight. It's the quiet one in the corner who's just watching and waiting to see how it all unfolds. And I think that's really true. I think that ultimately people who truly understand violence are the last to glorify it because they know the repercussions and they don't want that to have to happen. Like you and I both know that if something is to happen to one or you or me, it's going to be a bad day for that person. And if they were to take my life successfully, they're not going to walk away from that encounter intact either, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you, when you reach that mindset, you become a little more dangerous, but also a little calmer. Like you, you understand where this whole thing is headed and and you kind of want to diffuse it before it ever gets there. You know, it's by no means a glorified violence, just a practical violence. Yes. And I think one of the things that you're kind of touching on is that, I mean, violence is actually a normal part of being a human being. It's not the case that only bad people use violence. It is the case that we're all capable of it. And one of the things that is so empowering for women is to give themselves permission to tap into that ability to be violent if and when they need to. But that message that you were talking about receiving as a child, you know, was not only like, well, boys shouldn't hit girls, but it also kind of, it sets girls up to think that they're not people who can either be hit or hit. Yeah. And so then, I mean, I think that's kind of where it begins with women not even understanding that it is one of our tools as a human being is that ability to use violence to protect ourselves. And it's not, it doesn't mean that we're evil, bad people. It means that we're actually full human beings. And so when, like, I love that language that you used of like, when you, when there are people who are willing to employ it in an evil way, 
and you butt up against them, like your, your path crosses with them. If you don't have this awareness and you haven't given yourself permission and you don't know how to tap into your own tools, I mean, that's a disastrous day for you. Right. And that's, I mean, talking about like when our paths cross with something like that, that was what happened to me when I was in my 20s. I was absolutely, completely oblivious to the fact that there was, that there were bad people and that there were evil things and, and violence in the world because that was how I grew up. I didn't have any concept of it. And then I crossed paths with two muggers wielding guns who, you know, waylaid me and three of my friends. And oh my I, mean, I was absolutely, completely unprepared and dumbfounded. And like, I don't want my kids growing up as unprepared as I was. And I don't want other women in the world to be as unprepared as I was. And so getting comfortable with the idea that like violence in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's, it's just like talking about guns, right? It's like, it's not the tool that's, <laughs> that's the bad thing. It's the person who is wielding it and the intent yeah. that they're wielding it with. That's the truth. And, you know, I'll tell you something else about women's violence. And this comes from being in the fight gym now for however many years I've been in there regularly with the same crew of fighters, with the same people watching them grow up and evolve and take their first fights and then second and third, you know, and watching all the sparring and all the cross training with other gyms and MMA and boxing and seeing how different athletes respond to different chemistries or with different people. And one thing you see across the board, and and I know people don't like generalizations and I don't really care. I'm, I'm not a very PC person. I just say what I think is true. Um, you hear it all the time and guys will comment when they see women fighting they'll say, y'all are crazy. They'll, you know, basically what the guys say is, we'll fight each other. And when play fighting is part of male composition in the, in the human race, young males, they play, they romp, they're physical. I don't think that that's necessarily a social construct. I think that they really are pretty physical with their friends. It's, it's just how, it's something. I, but what I can tell you, and maybe it is how women are socialized, but our violence is, is more, you know, we keep it more private, right? And I, what I will say, what I've experienced in sparring, what I've seen is that in, in, in the MMA cage, I don't fight MMA, but when I watch women fight, it's different. I mean, the males, for the most part, they can go primal too, but the male fights are, are very often at the amateur level, you see this like chess match thing going on with the guys or whatever. It's maybe their test of wills or who's more cocky or who's more proud and they're kind of posturing and they're doing their thing. When two women get in there, they're trying to kill each other. It's it's crazy how fast it escalates and and how intense it gets. And I've experienced it in sparring, even with some of my own friends, to the point where I kind of prefer to spar guys because there's a little more like separation there. I don't go to the primal place. I don't know what it's about, but I think like it's something Coach Blauer I know touches on when he talks about the different tactics he's used to motivate women to think about self defense and when he talks to them about defending themselves versus defending their children and how they get more inspired and they get really murdery when, when he posits to them that someone's trying to assault one of their kids, these women are like, I'll rip their fucking head off. You know, mm-hmm. I think when you're a woman, when you, once you cross into that primal violence and you let yourself tap into that, it's very freeing and it's very liberating, but like it, it takes courage to let yourself go there. Does that make sense? Like to go there for the first time, you need to get hit to learn that you can take a punch. You got to let yourself get in the gym and get hurt. And you're going to be like, wow, that was different than I thought. Like 
you think a punch is going to hurt. You don't know that it's followed by an adrenaline rush. And it's basically like you just chugged a cup of coffee. It's you get hit. It does. It's, it's not pain that you feel it's energy, but you got to learn all that, you know, in the gym, it's, it's raw. It's raw stuff. That is really cool because I think one of the things for women to understand is that, that giving yourself permission to unleash that inner beast is a really good thing. Now, obviously we don't want to unleash it inappropriately like on our kids or on our partners or things like that. But if we have it there and available and we're willing to go there in order to protect ourselves and our loved ones, that is a very positive thing. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you brought up Tony Blower because um, yes, he talks about that. And also working with Rory Miller, he often talks about how if you talk to people who deal with violent offenders or have to deal with violent encounters on a regular basis. So people, you know, in, in the law enforcement realm and also in the military realm, and you give them a choice of like, would you rather have to take down a man or a woman? Like they'll all say, I would rather have to deal with the guy because dealing with the woman, like she turns into a crazy, crazy woman who's just all like teeth and nails and, and horrible violence, whereas it's much easier to deal with the guy. And yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's one of our superpowers and we have to own it and be very grateful that we have it. I think you're right. And I think, you know, tying back to what you asked me before about like, why would I want to be a pioneer or what are, you know, the, the, the conversation we had about animals and with Pippi and I'm so big on just primal acceptance. The world is giving you so many messages, especially as a woman every day. What's your body supposed to look like? How are you supposed to behave? What can you say? What can't you say? How do you not offend people? I mean, look at the plight of every woman that tries to run for office. She's either a Hillary or a Palin. It's like, you can't be both, right? You're either pretty and ditzy or you're this shrew that everyone, you know, they can't find enough boxes to put you in. And it's, you, you need to disconnect from all that stuff and just own your primal existence and your right to exist. And, you know, and I think animals are a wonderful way to connect with that. Like my, you know, my kids and I, we always marvel at every time we see, like, we saw a mama bear with two cubs when we were in Tennessee or uh, mama bison with, with a baby bison. And we're constantly looking at mamas and babies, you know, I don't tell cute stories about childbirth. I'm like, Hey, vaginas are awesome. You should see how much they stretch to let a baby out. It's amazing. And my daughter's like, yeah, my vagina is awesome. Like we don't, we're in, you know, I know that might make some people uncomfortable, but I think the more you can like own that, you feel the connection and you feel proud of your primal instincts. So like when I'm with Pippi, you know, I admire her primal instinct to run as a horse and and her defenses and her instincts and her sensitivity. And I can also honor my primal instincts as a human. And I think the good thing about that is when you tune into your awareness of violence or your awareness of your own capacity for violence, you're also tuning into your own capacity for tenderness and altruism and sensuality and survival. And you know, there's like all these other facets of existing as a human that that you can tap into and kind of embrace the wholeness of outside the confines of the social constructs that are telling you, you what you should be and how you should look and how you should act. You know, it's like the most liberating thing in the world. And it 
for me, it's just so enriching. It's enriching my life experience and my experience as a mom and all these things. And people would say, how the hell did you get to that through violence? And I would say, because violence is like this ultimate freedom. Like once you experience violence and you can enact violence and you just, you're not, you're not repressing anything anymore. It all can come out, you know? I'm just sitting here speechless because I'm just nodding my head back and forth and just right? like, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I think I can say this stuff to you because I feel like you understand me. Like, I, I can say it because I'm like, I know she's going to know what I'm talking about. She's not going to think I'm bananas. You know, from what I know about you, like, I know you're already in touch with these things. So I can say it and you're going to be like, girl, I feel you. You're not going to be like, wow, she's nuts. <laughs> so. <laughs> No, I absolutely, 100%, totally align with everything that you said. <laughs> absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's well, so cool. We have been talking for a very long time. This has been absolutely amazing. So I have one more question before we wrap up. And it's actually very much in alignment with what we were just talking about. It's how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? I really have to think about that. I would start for me, where it started was looking at the, the messages I've internalized and questioning those, like just at the beginning and, and uh, dismantle those from the beginning. Because some people are going to tell you, you know, start working out and do this and manifest your ideal self. And that's all awesome. But I think it, it, I think it will come from like manifesting a radical sense of self-acceptance and kind of going from there. like you need to accept if this is who you are and this is what you need, you do that and the world be damned. Like when I became a single mom and I love to travel and I love to have adventures, I'm now responsible for these two little lives that are with me. I need to be able to defend them. That means that I'm now responsible for defending my home and I'm responsible for defending them when we're on the road. So what does that mean? Well, it means that I had to get firearms training. I had to get a gun. I learned to use it and operate it responsibly and undertook the best training I could and combatives training to integrate the use of the weapons that I had, as well as the blade that I started to carry in situations where a gun wouldn't be appropriate, you know, like sleeping in a tent at night, you know, working out those scenarios and, and obtaining advice from, from experienced people in different areas to learn, you know, what, you know, working out in my mind, what those scenarios are and, and things like that. But I think before you can get to that space, just like in snowboarding, before you can hit a jump and land it or do a trick and land it successfully, you have to visualize yourself being able to do that. You have to, you have to feel it all from start to finish. And if you can't, you're not ready. And I tell that to people as a writer, it's true. Writing is just explaining. It's the, it's the understanding that takes time and the thinking. Once I've figured out the answer, I sit down and write it and that's quick. So I think for, for women, it's really like, if you're not already in this place and you're not already in the place where you want to be, what's stopping you and go deep and be fearless and searching. Isn't that what AA says? Like a fearless moral inventory or something like you got to do that digging and be brave and accept yourself and be loving to yourself and, and talk to yourself the way you'd talk to a friend, not, not, not with those internalized messages of like self-loathing that women have for ourselves. Like you're not good enough. You're ugly. You're weak. You know, but you talk to yourself in that way that you talk to someone you care about and you, you build out from there. And I think that if you go to that place and your compass is set on wanting to become empowered and be stronger, you're going to find your course. Because for some women, empowerment is going to be running marathons. For others, it's going to be painting a mural. I can't define what empowerment looks like for everyone else. 
I don't think it has to necessarily be fighting, but you can't get there without the dig first. That is, that is something I'm going to have to sit with and think about for quite a while because it takes a lot of courage to be willing to dig. Yeah. But I think that you're right that if you, if you don't do that, then you never really get to what's important for you as an individual. So I love that. That's a, that's a very deep answer and I'm going to have to sit with it for a while. And I imagine the people listening to this are going to have to th- contemplate that for a bit too. That's, that's really cool. Really? Yeah. I, you know, and I'm thinking, I hope that your daughter, you know, when she's a little bit older or maybe even now, I don't know, will listen to this interview and just hear, I know she <laughs> knows what an amazing woman you are, but I think that as she becomes a young woman, if she listens to this as a young woman, she's going to find so much value in it too. Oh, that's touching. Thank you. Well, you maybe take till she's a little older. Isn't she going to think I'm a nerd until she's like 29? And then she'll start to tell me like bit by bit that I was right. That's what I did with my mom. Like it was like one thing at a time. And it started in my late twenties and she'd be like, all right, I'm checking the boxes of things I was right about. It took you 30 years to tell me that I'll take it. <laughs> well, I don't think it necessarily has to take that long. <laughs> right, it just took me that long. I'm that yeah. stubborn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Well, awesome. before we sign off, I would like for you to share your how to contact you, how to find you information, because I know that people are going to want to get in touch with you after listening to this. Okay, well... You can find me on LinkedIn. It's Dr. Alice Atalanta. So it's A-T-A-L-A-N-T-A, PhD on there. You can find me on Instagram if you're more you know, casual. It's um, just at V. So A-L-I-C-I-N-A-V. Oh, my website, of course. You know, for, if you want to check out and sort of see some writing samples and things like that, see a little bit more about what I do, you can go to my first and last name, aliceatalanta.com. And, uh, you know, one thing I love to do and I, and I haven't done a ton of, but is, is writing with women. So right now I've done a lot of books with guys, but, you know, always looking for that, that opportunity to collaborate with a female and, and help her tell her story. So I, that's something I would love to see come out of this. Cause yeah, I love to be in your chair where people are telling me the story and I'm, I'm getting to write it out. That makes me happy. Oh, that's great. I, I can think of several people actually that I might be able to put you in contact with who have super powerful stories to tell. And I can't think of anybody better to collaborate with than you. So. Oh, you're so sweet. Well, I will put all of your contact information and everything in the show notes and okay. um, maybe link that article too. And um, just thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been absolutely amazing. Oh, you're, I'm honored. I mean, I was so honored when you called me. So thank you. It's so fun. I feel like I learned something too. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this and maybe surprise myself with whatever we talked about. So thank you for this opportunity. Well, this is great. Thank you so much, Alice. This has just been wonderful. Oh, for me too, Cynthia. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. This is the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.